Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us for today. But here's something I do know. God is at work in your life and He's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish His purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust His work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots. Whether you are here in the room or watching online, live, or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey, and wherever you are on your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your church home, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Most of you know this about me already. Um, if you're new to day spring today, let me just keep it real. All cards on the table, though I could try to hide the truth from you, I won't. I'm just not that kind of guy. Uh, like it or not, what you see is what you get. So here it is. I'm a bit of a nerd. Some of you are thinking more than a bit of a nerd, and that's okay. I am comfortable in my own skin. Uh, my nerdiness, my nerdness, nerdity, and that just proved my point. Uh, my inner nerd comes out when I watch movies. I'm pretty interested in what happens on the screen, of course, but I'm also interested in what happens off screen or on the green or blue screen, as the case may be. J.R.R. Tolkien, arguably one of the pioneers in the world of fantasy, gave us The Hobbit and The, the Fellowship of the Ring, which, which have influenced an entire genre of fantasy since they were released. Now, I guess that many of us have already seen the, re, the most recent movies directed by Peter Jackson. Uh, he and his crew did a masterful job of bringing a completely made-up world to life. Much of the series was filmed in the beautifully picturesque country of New Zealand. Uh, take a look at this beautiful location. Uh, who wouldn't want to watch a sunset from here? This picture doesn't do it justice. Or does it? <laughs> it loses a little bit of its glamour from this perspective. <laughs> Here's another gorgeous view. Again, it kind of makes you want to go to New Zealand to see it in person. Or not. 
those stars in a night sky lose a bit of their luster. <laughs> All of this to illustrate that not everything is always as it seems. Not everything is always as it seems. This became clearer to us in the past couple of years as we've been glued to computer screens in Zoom meetings. There's always a doofus in the meeting who has to change his background to something laughable and make it look like he's floating in space or she's in the middle of Times Square. But on a more serious note, we know that not everything is always as it seems. When my mom was a single mom and we ate generic food provided through public assistance, I never knew we were poor. I thought every home had bad cornflakes and powdered milk. In school, I applied myself in math, believing that someday all of that trigonometry and calculus would be important to my life. But when I do my taxes, I wish I'd taken a foreign language so that I could understand it better. <laughs> I grew up thinking that my bio dad was ashamed of me because I was so different from the rest of the voids. I didn't know until I was about 22 that he actually bragged about me to everyone. As a parent, when Lexi got interested in boys, which started around the age of five, but <laughs> when she got more serious about boys, I didn't like a few of them. To be fair, even now, I call my son-in-law the boy every now and then. But when she broke up with them and was crying on my shoulder, I pretended that I didn't want to celebrate. Not everything is always what it seems, right? We all have a perspective, and that perspective is influenced by our biases and our experiences, our hopes and dreams, our likes and dislikes. And like J.R.R. Tolkien, often our imaginations run wild, making up our own reality, which means that even through our own eyes, not everything is always what it seems. Well, there's another relationship that is not necessarily as it appears. And that relationship is the subject of our conversation today. It's the relationship between life and God. Because for many of us, life and God, the relationship between the two gets confused and, we, and often appears to be one and the same. So when life is good, God is good. And if life gets really bad and you or someone you love is experiencing extreme difficulty or some challenging hardship, when life is not good, God is not good. When you're facing deep disappointment, it's, it's very easy to assume that there is no personal God or, or maybe even no God at all. It's very easy for disappointment with life to become disappointment with God. It's really easy to see how this happens when you're struggling just to keep your own life together and you look around and everyone seems like uh, their life is, is blessed and picture perfect, everything's working out for them, but life's just not working out the way you want or hope or dream. And people say, ah, just pray and trust God. And you do, but after, after a while, you begin to equate your life experience with God. And you either decide that God is not good, God is not personal, God is not active, God doesn't just doesn't care about you, or perhaps there is no God at all. Because when dreams don't come true and life doesn't work out the way we want it to, we often turn our frustration, understandably, to God. 
And it gets even more complicated if you grew up believing like I did, that God is behind everything or God is part of everyday life. And then it becomes a next to impossible to separate your life experience from God and to place your frustration with life on God. It's easy for disappointment with life to become disappointment with God and to get to the place where you don't even believe that God exists anymore or that he doesn't care about you. That was the case with today's bad boy of Easter. Now, if you're just joining us today, we've been studying the gospel of John this spring, but we pushed pause on that a couple of weeks ago to get our hearts ready for Easter by looking at three of the bad boys of Easter. Not to judge them, but to see how much of them is actually in us. So far, we've looked at Caiaphas, the high priest, who had too much to lose to follow Jesus. It would have cost him too much. He liked his influence, his power, and his wealth too much to give them up. And then we looked at Judas Iscariot, who couldn't just, just couldn't seem to get Jesus to do what he wanted Jesus to do. Next week, we'll return to the Gospel of John. But today's bad boy of Easter is a guy whose life had spun completely out of control. We don't know his name. We don't know how old he was. But we do know that his life had spun completely out of control to the point that he found himself in a Roman jail cell, which was probably a hole in the ground. He was condemned to death. He was so violent and unpredictable that he couldn't even be trusted to be a slave. He couldn't even be trusted to row a Roman galley. His only value, the only value of his life was to serve as an illustration of the futility of fighting Rome. Because they have condemned him to death, they are going to crucify him as a warning to anyone else who would defy the Roman Empire. Now, this man had seen crucifixion before. He'd seen the aftermath of crucifixion, the remains of crucifixion. He'd probably even smelled crucifixion. He knew exactly what he was in for. He knew that though he would fight and curse and scream, though he would be defiant to the end, in the end, death would take him. And then his body would be peeled off the cross and put in a wagon before it was taken to the south side of Jerusalem, down into the valley of Gehenna and placed on a city dump. Because no one would be given permission to claim his body. There would be no mourners. Uh, His friends, his family, his government, and even God had abandoned him. He would die as a common criminal. But this man decided that he would die the way he had lived, defiantly. And on the morning that they dragged him out of the hole, out of the Roman jail cell, he discovered that he would not, he would not die alone. Two other people would be crucified that same day. Perhaps he even knew one of them. We don't, we don't know. But he discovered that morning that the Jewish rabbi from Nazareth, the one creating all of the ruckus, had also been condemned to death and would die with him as well. Maybe the silver lining would be that there would, there would be a, a large crowd there to see the Jewish rabbi crucified, also giving him an audience for his final defiance as well. The Gospel of Luke tells us how all of this went. Now, if you're new to church or new to Dayspring, it's important that you understand that this is not just a Bible story. It doesn't begin with once upon a time. It's not even a religious story. 
that we know this story at all is because Luke, who tells us from the beginning of his document, Luke was so captivated by Jesus and his, his life and his ministry, his death and resurrection, spoiler alert, there is a happy ending, that he did a careful, thorough investigation of the details in order to write an orderly chronological account of Jesus' life. So this isn't just a story, it is the report of eyewitness testimony. It isn't true because it's in the Bible, it's in the Bible because it's true. Uh, this document was so accurate that other people began to copy it because they also wanted to understand the details of Jesus' life. And over time, the Gospel of Luke, as we call it, uh, the story of Jesus was gathered together with other accounts of Jesus' life, and then ultimately, some 200 years later, bound together in a book that we call the Bible. But before then, before there was a New Testament, before there was a church even, Luke went to great lengths to capture the story of Jesus while it was fresh in the minds of those who were on the scene. And here's what he discovered happened on the day that Jesus was crucified. Uh, this is what, what he says in chapter 23. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Now, fortunately, none of us has ever witnessed a crucifixion firsthand, which makes it easy for us some 2,000 years later to just keep reading and miss the pain, miss the terror, the violence, the agony, the noise. It took hours and hours and hours, and in some cases, even days, two or three days for someone to die. People were not always crucified the same way. Sometimes it, with, it was with rope and nails. Sometimes it was just rope. There were all kinds of things that the Romans used to crucify people. As we've said each week, we got the framework for this series from Pastor Andy Stanley. He gets the credit for all of the historical research here. He says, the Romans did not create crucifixion, but the Romans perfected crucifixion. And the accounts of this crucifixion that we read in the Bible tell us that the two other people who hung to the right and left of Jesus were hurling profanity and curses at the Romans, at the people passing by, and at those who had come to watch the spectacle. And as the violence continues, as the screaming and pain and commotion of this very tumultuous moment in time continued, these two criminals hear the guy in the middle, this Jewish rabbi, say something. A word rarely uttered from a Roman cross. They heard, Father, which is in and of itself unusual. Most dying men would call for their mother, not their father. But the next words startled them. Certainly, they had never been uttered from a cross before this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. And while the Roman soldiers split everything that he owned and, and gambled to see who could win it all, while the men are dying to his left and right as his enemies are celebrating, as we're going to see in a moment, while all of that's happening, Jesus prayed for them. 
Luke, who again thoroughly investigated all of this, tells us that there were people watching. People had gathered from all over town, from all over the country actually, because the population of Jerusalem swelled during Passover and everybody came out for the spectacle of a crucifixion, especially one so close to town. Uh, No doubt they lined the walls, so to speak, uh, the hillsides. Uh, There is something about tragedy and pain that is embarrassingly fascinating, isn't there? I mean, that's why the freeway slows down so much when there is a wreck. We can't help but looky-loo. But it wasn't just the citizens watching. There were others too. Luke tells us that the religious leaders were there as well. And these rulers, the the very people responsible for Jesus' arrest, the, the people threatened by his authority, threatened by his miracles and by his words, these rulers sneered at him. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. This is the group that had the most to lose from Jesus' success. They had spent months and months and months in the crosshairs of Jesus, shamed by Jesus' answers to their questions, humiliated by his criticism. Now that was over. There would no longer be any fear of the crowd on their part. They were back on top, and this was their moment to exact revenge and release the anger toward Jesus that had been building and building and building for two to two and a half years. They were no longer afraid of the crowd. Jesus was harmless, and they weren't going to let up while they watched him die. Now, besides the crowd of people and the religious leaders, there were the soldiers They joined in as well. Luke tells us the soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. You know, even here, not everything is as it seems. You can't always trust Hollywood's version of things, even in Christian-like movies. Because when you watch a movie about the crucifixion, most of the time the person being crucified, their feet are two or three feet off of the ground and the people are looking up at them as they're crucified. But that's not how it was done. Romans crucified people with their feet six to seven inches off the ground. Because the whole idea of crucifixion was humiliation. Uh, They were able to walk right up to and almost be face to face with someone being crucified. They could scream in their faces and spit on them and walk away. They were only a few inches off the ground. So the the Roman soldiers walked right up to Jesus and hurled their insults at him. And they offered him sour wine or a wine vinegar, which was basically two buck chuck. Cheap soldier wine. And they say to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. They refer to him as the king of the Jews because when Pilate decided that he would be executed, uh, he ordered a sign made that said king of the Jews, which made the Jewish leaders unhappy. They wanted the sign changed to say he claimed to be king of the Jews. But Pilate said, "Uh uh-uh, it's going to stay king of the Jews because I want everyone to know that anyone who claims to be a king, anyone who would defy Caesar... This is what they have to look forward to. 
So the Roman soldiers played off of that, and they began to mock him as the king of the Jews. And if that's not enough, uh, the other two criminals, maybe because they, can't, they just can't stand Jesus' passive resignation to his fate, maybe because they're happy to not be at the center of the crowd's jeers, uh, who knows, but they join in the mocking of Jesus as well. In verse 39, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Now, Luke tells us about only one of the criminals joining in on the insults aimed at Jesus. But Matthew, who was one of Jesus' closest followers, who no doubt was also in the crowd, tells us that it was actually both criminals who turned all of their anger and animosity on Jesus. And clearly they've picked up what the crowd is throwing down. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the anointed one sent by God to save the world? Shouldn't you be able to do something about this? Save yourself. Oh, and me too while you're at it. (laughs) But if you aren't the Christ, if you can't save yourself and you can't save us, because if there was a God, this wouldn't be happening. We wouldn't be here right now. There is no justice in the world and there is no personal God. We have the gift of hindsight. We can look back at this and see a a different perspective. Looking back, if at any point one of those criminals had said, where is God? The answer would have been about 12 feet to the left or right of you. And suddenly, in the midst of it all, our guy, our criminal has his aha moment. In the midst of the pain and agony and chaos, our guy stops shouting and begins to sense something different about this Jewish rabbi. He thinks about that simple prayer he just heard Jesus utter, Father, forgive them. And it dawns on him. His eyes are opened to the truth that this Jesus is a righteous man, a man sent from God, and they all have it wrong. And he says to the other criminal, our guy says, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Now, wait a minute. I'm seeing something I couldn't see before. I'm watching this guy suffer just like we are suffering. But he hasn't abandoned his faith in God. He's suffering just like we're suffering, but he's been able to keep his faith in God. This man is taking his life, experiencing his life just like we are. And yet, he still believes that God can be called Father. He's not drawing conclusions about God based on the way life and others are treating him. We are getting what we deserve, but not this guy. He's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. And in that moment, his worldview is turned upside down. He sees Jesus in a way few others see Jesus. And in his last conversation, right before he dies, this very unrighteous man has a conversation with the most righteous man the world has ever seen. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, Follow what must have been his thought process. If an innocent man can suffer like a guilty man and still maintain faith in God, 
If this innocent man, this righteous man can suffer like me, can be treated unfairly, can be treated unjustly, and yet still maintain faith in God, how much more should a guilty man for whom there is justification for suffering be able to maintain faith in God? And then it dawns on him, this is the Messiah. This is, as the sign correctly says, the king of the Jews. And in humility, he turns his head. And even though there isn't a question mark at the end of the sentence in our English Bibles, this is a question. It's a dying man's last request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I get it. I see. Not because of anything I've done, but in spite of everything I've done. Because if an innocent man can suffer and still believe in God, in the midst of his circumstances, perhaps there is a good God after all. An innocent man would have every reason to abandon his faith in God, to doubt the goodness of God. If life and God were the same, that would make sense. Life is bad, so the same must be true about God. And Jesus answers him and says, I assure you, today, you will be with me in paradise. In spite of all you've done, you will be with me. And get this, not because you are dedicating your life or rededicating your life, planning to live for my glory for the rest of your life. Rededicating your life on a cross is meaningless. There is no repentance from a cross. No, I'm going to change my life and live different from the cross. No, I'm going to change this or stop doing that or I will always do this. There's none of that from the cross because his life is all but over. There's just the desperate plea for grace and mercy and the promise of salvation. Because God's thoughts about you are not reflected in your circumstances. God's thoughts about you have nothing to do with what's happening to you. God's love for you is not contingent on what you are experiencing. God is not your personal experience. Now think about that. Life may have left you broken, abandoned, hurt beyond measure. But life does not reflect to you the true nature of God. Not everything is as it seems. That's Jesus' last message before he dies. And then Luke tells us, that by this time it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words he breathed his last. Now, if you grew up in church, you might already understand the significance of the curtain tearing. In the temple, the Holy of Holies was set apart from the rest of the temple by a curtain. Behind the veil or behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of God. Supposedly, God dwelt there. It was thick. It was a thick, heavy curtain. And it was such a holy place that it had to be separated from common men to protect them. Only the high priest ever went behind the curtain, and even then only once a year. It separated the presence of God from the rest of the world. And Luke tells us that this curtain was torn in two, not from the bottom up, but from the top down. Torn by God to signify that 
everyone is now welcome in the presence of God. God has made a way. Because everything that separated every man and woman from God was in that moment taken care of on a hill where a cross bearing Jesus had been planted. And then as he breathed his last breath, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. Now before we get to the good part, the happy ending, here's the question. Maybe you've never thought about it in these terms, but have you perhaps confused life with God? Have you drawn conclusions about God based on what you've experienced in life? Have you drawn conclusions about God based on what has happened to you, based on unanswered prayers, based on things that people you love have experienced that you think they never should have had to experience? It's a natural conclusion. Is God mad at me because my life experience is challenging? Is he punishing me? Is he really a good God? Would a good God allow this circumstance in my life? Even Christ followers wonder about this every now and then. We, we get it. Of course you've lost your faith in God. Of course you're angry with God. Of course you've quit praying. Of course you've walked away from church. We get it. There's no judgment here. But Jesus' last message on the cross isn't just for our guy, our criminal. It's for you too. It's as if he's saying, if you forget everything else I've said, remember this. God, my Father, is not what you have experienced. You can trust him in spite of your experience. God is not life. God is not your life. God sent Jesus to bring you life. And here's why we gather some 2,000 years later. This is the story of so many of us. What you find in Jesus is exactly what you don't find in life. Grace, mercy, and love. What you, what you find in Jesus is a man who faced the same kind of life circumstances that we do. He felt disappointment. He was bullied. He was tempted. He faced obstacles and challenges. And yet, he never played the God card. I think about that. He could have. But he never leveraged Jesus for the benefit of Jesus. He knew what it meant to be lonely and abandoned. He knew what it felt like when God said no. He knew what it felt like to be overwhelmed. He didn't deserve any of that. He was innocent. We can't say the same. But in spite of all that life threw at him, his confidence in God paved the way for us to have life and confidence in God as well. Yeah, life happens. But life isn't God. God can be trusted. Your experience isn't God. Your disappointment is understandable, but it doesn't mean you have to live your life disappointed in God. Life happens, but God can be trusted. And when you open your hands and surrender instead of clenching your fists in anger, you open yourself to receiving all of the grace, mercy, and love that the God of creation has to offer you. Here's another reason you can trust the truth communicated in Jesus' final words. He didn't stay dead. If he had stayed dead, they would have been just empty, powerless words of a misguided good guy. 
But he didn't stay dead. After he breathed his last, he was taken down from the cross. And for some reason, he was allowed to be buried in a tomb instead of dumped in the dump. The tomb was sealed so that no one could take his body. At this point, it was over. The disciples weren't expecting anything else to happen. They were just shell-shocked, trying to figure out what to do next. Had Jesus stayed dead, there would be no church, no Bible. None of us would have ever heard of him because there would be nothing to write. But he didn't stay dead. Very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in. But they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day? Then... They remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Other gospel accounts tell us that they actually saw Jesus in the moments after they discovered the empty tomb. And then, from that moment on, Jesus appeared to a few more. And then a few more. Until hundreds had seen the man who should have been dead, not dead. Not dead, but alive. It is a historical fact that Jesus lived and was crucified. It is a historical fact that Jesus was buried. And because too many people saw him alive when he should have been dead to deny the truth, it is a historical fact that Jesus was resurrected. Anyone who can predict his own death and resurrection and then pull it off well, in this case, what you see is what you get. This is what it appears to be. A chance to receive exactly what life doesn't offer you. But God does. Mercy, grace, love. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, we have a lot of people here in the room, a lot of people watching online. And we, we all come to this place having experienced something in life. We might be experiencing something right now that challenges the way we view God. We ask in these moments that you just clear that up. 
We want to see God for who he really is. We want to see Jesus for who he really is. We want to experience Jesus for who he really is. And that means we have to separate all that we've experienced in life from our understanding of God. Because regardless of what we experience in life, God, you are good. God, you are for us, not against us. God, you are working a plan to make us more like Jesus. And sometimes that plan has valleys and sometimes it has mountains. But it doesn't change the fact that God is good. And he's for us and not against us. We thank you for that. Father, we know that it's likely right now that in these moments there is someone here in the room, someone watching online, who came to this place like our guy, the criminal. Came here without a relationship with Jesus. Father, today, may they leave here in relationship with Jesus. If that describes you today, or maybe, um, maybe you've also, you've just, you believe in Jesus, but you've kind of been doing your own thing for a while. And maybe today you hear his still small voice calling you to take it deeper. It's really, it's really an easy first step. All you've got to do is say, yes, Lord. Yes, I believe. I believe that Jesus came for me, gave his life for me, and now he lives ready to bring me into life. And from here on out, I will live for Jesus. The words really don't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's the heart that God looks at. So I invite you to say yes. God, thank you for Jesus and his death and resurrection. Thank you that you didn't leave us dead in the grave. But like Lazarus, you have called us out of death into life. It's a little different because he was physically dead, but we, we, we were spiritually dead before Jesus. Thank you for life, new life through Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen.
Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions, alone or with others, will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you. People who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.